Chernobyl. Everybody. Chernobyl. To another episode of the podcast. Grew up on a farm. Where we have yet another guest speaker, and we are still Jakeless. I don't know what you mean. Uh, allow me to introduce myself as Jake. Most people know me as Drew, but please refer to me as Jake. It's an alternative spelling. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I'll figure it out by the time this goes live. Now, <laughs> Drew <laughs> isn't like our typical guests. Uh, Drew, you don't have any back official background in games. Nope. Hobbyist and no more. Yeah, right. But the topic that we're talking about really appeals to some of the games that you like to play, hence why we have brought you here. At least I hope I had a plan when I was bringing you here. I mean, the plan was a filler guest. But at the same time, yes. Strategy <laughs> games, uh, turn-based, all sorts of stuff. And I tend to love messing with all of the different things I can min-max, whether or not it actually gets me anywhere. Bless your soul. I don't have the patience for that. Mazio, what are we talking about today? Because this is your topic. And I only vaguely, if we're being honest, I only read the topic and was like, that sounds interesting. And then I haven't thought of it <laughs> until right now. All right. So I'm going to give a little bit of exposition on this and then and then we can kind of talk from there. So one of the majorly weird things about games is how often, particularly in board games and tabletop games, intermediate resources or non-win condition oriented resources are really the focus to certain parts of the game cycle. The easiest example, and I think this is why uh, Drew Jake is here today in particular, is Magic the Gathering, where the most... Oh my god. What? No, continue, please. The, we literally talked about this exact thing. I haven't touched ta- that we- shit in years. And we talked about Stiv and Stellaris, which is why Drew is here. No, no, but Jake. But this is where we started. Off, we started this conversation off here, and then we moved it into those. And I'm starting it off where I started the logic train off. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Go we'll ahead, arrive continue. at the station eventually. It takes a minute to get between stations with me sometimes. Magic the Gathering's early game is all about mana, having enough of it, not having too much of it. But you don't win because you have mana. Early game Civ, at least in my opinion, is largely about population and being able to create settlers and then being able to put down districts based upon population, but you can't win because of population. In the same way that stone and horses and things like that in uh, civilization affect the same thing. And when you start looking at it across the board... You have games like Terraforming Mars, which have multiple types of resources, and they all contribute to your overall ability to win the game, but they don't actually give you the game. Having the most titanium or heat isn't actually going to win you the game. You need to be able to use other things as well and translate those resources over. And you see this in a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of games. Like, for example, this is also true in Monster Hunter, because Rise just recently came out. Well, I need the resources that I get from gathering, I need the resources that I get from the cuts I get off of the monster, and I break the tails or the horns or the what, whatever you break on the particular monster, because that varies greatly, to acquire additional resources. But those resources don't actually let me win fights, especially not in that fight. It will contribute to my ability to win fights later on, but it's not actually how this works. And one of the things that I've observed is that these non-win condition resources, these resources that do not actually contribute to winning, right? The huge example is, of course, Twilight Imperium, where you only win on victory points, and it's really a race to 10 
Uh, like, that's generally what my friends and I play to. But there's a million other resources, all of which you have to balance or you will lose this game. But none of those resources will actually win you that game. And your ability to manipulate and acquire them is, you know, important in an abstract sense. But it doesn't matter if you did that better if you don't have more victory points at the end of the game. And what these things do, and I'm not going to talk about Stellaris because I know Jake Drew knows more about Stellaris than I do, because I am noob-tastic in Stellaris, like, non-functionally noob in Stellaris. Yet I've never finished a game. Yeah, I don't think that's uncommon. I don't believe that is uncommon (laughs) at all. What, What you have is a whole lot of design space dedicated to this process, and these processes, these resources, that give the game essentially its flavor. Like, if you were to sit down and ask me what I think the game is, a game is about, very rarely will a person say, oh, Magic is about a life total, or Civ is about population growth. They're, they're not going to generally say those things. They're going to say, oh, you win this game on technology, or religion, or by killing your opponent, or poisoning them, or milling them, or doing this, or doing, like, all of these million little things. And League of Legends, which Drew, Jake, and I, yes, I'm swapping back and forth intentionally, that's not an accident, play League of Legends, oh my gosh, there's so many resources you have to manage. And those resource mismanagements result in losing games more than winning them, but at the same time, did getting the dragon directly hand me a tower? No? I guess it technically didn't directly hand me the tower, but it was a major factor. And a lot of what... I'm coming to see in more recent games in particular, although I guess the magic example like directly unfounds that, is that games are really focusing on that that intermediate manipulation of indirect value, where I can put you into this endless unsolvable puzzle of districts, we're going back to civilization now, districts, populations, strategic resources, bonus resources, I just lost the name. What's the diplomatic point? I think it's literally diplomatic points. No, the other one, the envoys. Envoys. Oh. Envoys give you city-states, city-states give you votes, votes give you victory points. Okay, but city-states give you other things. Depending on their type, yeah. Depending on their type, they might give you military or science or culture or religion or there's other ones. There's lots of them. Go look them up. I'm not going to quote them all. Functionally, what does this do? And the answer is, it creates a puzzle that removes the direct march to victory. When you look at a very simple game, especially one that's hyper-luck-driven like Candyland, which is my go-to example for this for some reason, you get cards, cards move spaces, get to the top of the spaces, win game. You can't do anything. There's no, there's no intermediate resources. In the same way, you see a lot of games snowball because they don't do this. And what kind of happened is the balance of these indirect value, these indirect values, these non-win condition resources, has hit a weird proportion because games are now going, well, wait, if you do collect 22 billion widgets, then you win the game with a widget win condition. Huh? Oh, that makes sense because it's actually shifting the focus of the game from points to engines. Wow, that changes things dramatically. The big tabletop example for this that I haven't touched on yet is Dominion, where you build the engine, but the engine doesn't win you the game. And lots of times I watch people myself, I'm super guilty of this, amazing deck that does lots of things and loses every game I ever play because I 
get way too concerned about drawing cards and taking actions. I am the exact same. I fall in love with having as many actions in the most absurd action tree possible, and then I come in, like, third place out of four. Yep! <laughs> Why? Well, I never <laughs> got me any of them victory cards over there. Look at how well this engine runs. What What do you mean putting it in a car? Yeah. <laughs> it's the greatest engine I've ever seen. It doesn't have any wheels, though. Yeah, I am inclined to agree. I also want to clarify a few points um, and possibly walk through an example. So I have a few questions. You've already answered a few. Let me first ask, are we sort of limiting our scope to games where you're playing against other players or are we including more single player solo experiences? I, I would say we're including single player solo experiences because most of the games I have mentioned actually have solo modes to them that present the same puzzle. Okay. Then I'd like to submit another option for a very uh, narrowed down game and that is idle games or clicker games because while some like the clicker hero games have a lot of side things and skill trees and you can automate stuff if you think back to the classic cookie clicker, there are three things here. There are your cookies, there is your infrastructure that makes you cookies, and there is your own time. That is it. And I'm inclined to agree that if you were not balancing your own time and making infrastructure, if it was just have arbitrary cookies, I don't think anyone would spend any time in that game. Whereas, as it is, it's clearly had some success. I, ha Other I, have, clarification, to play I have to play this game now. Oh, no. it, it is very straightforward and surprisingly twisted when you pay attention to what you do to all those lovely grandmothers. Oh, I know this game. <laughs> now that you've said that, I know the game. <laughs> huh. yep. One of the hashtags on the Apple Play Store is hentai. I don't know why that one's there. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so to walk through another example and help clarify what I, what we mean by resource, the, in League of Legends, that's one we've talked about on the podcast before. In League of Legends, the win condition would be Nexus Health, correct? Correct. Let's just... And a direct related resource would be Towers, for instance. You have your gold, that helps you, which is a resource to help you get items. But let me ask, are the item choices in the shop a resource to players? Yes. Okay. Would a player's uh, knowledge of the game be considered a resource in this context? Oh yeah, definitely. Hard to get okay. hard to get lost if you don't know what the game does. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm going to go ahead and assume that yes to player patience as well. What about player <laughs> given? I mean morale. Player <laughs> given, <laughs> the most valuable source of all. <laughs> I'm gonna say that I'm gonna say that that applies in digital formats only, very or, or very specific games. But some games do have that resource. You're, okay. you're not going to leave a four-player board game on a Tuesday night at your friend's house, right? But, like, well, I've seen folks... don't tempt me. <laughs> oh, all <laughs> right. Apparently some of the, some people on this podcast are a little less uh, genteel than myself. <laughs> oh, no, I would never, but I will, there have been people who have, and it's one of the cases where I will judge a person. How do you step out? Look, Mazio. Back when I lived in Maniunk, we were playing an innocent game of Munchkin. There's no such and thing think, as an innocent game of Munchkin. And True. I think from across the table, this was about ready to strangle me. Like, <laughs> left the game because I betrayed him in Munchkin. So, here's what I'm going to say, though. So, so bad. Like, there's games where the social acceptability is universal, right? Like, when you're beat in League of Legends, you FF. When you're beat in Magic, you scoop. Then there's games like sure. Munchkin. Where that was definitely a breach of social contract to storm off there. 
<laughs> oh, I think Mario we're getting party? off to the side of the topic, but <laughs> I think that is an interesting point about the social norms around games and being at the table or in the match. Ooh, we should, um, uh, for instance, we should... as a corollary, yeah, civilization. Uh, I sort of want to try a game with players where we are willing to eliminate each other. Amanda here is of the mindset of why would you remove a friend from playing with you? So that's a... I'm with you, Drew. No, Drew. <laughs> but... Every time we play Civ, you're constantly paranoid that I'm gonna turn around and bitch slap you. We've never finished a game, so I still don't know the answer. <laughs> And for everyone listening, occasionally I just line troops up on Drew's border just to make him more paranoid when I have no intention of actually attacking him. I have a bad habit of not building walls, but she <laughs> makes so me. Good. Whoa, 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 whoa. Amanda, <laughs> I've watched you betray and attack people, myself yeah. included. So let's not yeah. let's not oh, pretend wait, hold on, hold on, let's hold not on, pretend that Jake Drew's idea that that you might do this to him. <laughs> is so far flung that it could never happen. So, so I want to say, I just want to say this real quick. I want to say this. Mazio, you've betrayed me in Civ 2. I know because we went to war against a common enemy and when that war ended, you turned around and tried to bitch slap me, but I got knights first. I know. And then it became but, a problem. But here's what I'm going to say. I never said I didn't do that to people. I haven't betrayed people. I don't remember betraying you. I do. Axe in this tree. Who remembers uh, what? I don't remember it, but maybe I did. How convenient. Mm. At any rate, pulling back to the League of Legends example, uh, what about internet bandwidth? Is that a resource? I'm going to say players? no. Cause it's I mean, on a holistic level, you could argue that, but I don't know that that applies to a resource that game creators actually account for. So it's well beyond the design space, so we are not accounting for it in this topic. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. Uh, that ticks off electricity bill, then. <laughs> I appreciate the thoroughness. <laughs> okay, and I'm going to go ahead and assume that since we included player patience and knowledge that uh, team chemistry, for instance, bringing in a five-man group to League or your own squad to Apex does count as a resource. Oh, definitely. I'm very all much right. a resource to Amanda when we play Apex. There's something, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. <laughs> I didn't even need to respond to that. Hey, I think lead weights are a resource, okay? If I could chuck the lead weights at somebody's head, then they'd be a resource, but I can't exactly pick I up your body somebody and eat it. I have killed nine people this season, okay? That's like 900% more, more than last season. Think of it like resistance training, Amanda. I just wanted to be, for all the listeners, Mazio's only played this season. That's why it's 900% more than the previous season. I'd like for all the listeners to understand that statistical analysis of that is still correct, regardless of whether or not I was actively involved. <laughs> this is also true. Fair. But I Mazio, completely forgot where I was going. It's okay. Welcome uh, to the podcast. <laughs> Mazio, I guess I want to know what... I guess I missed your main point in all this. Is your point that the design these resources? Space... Go ahead. These resources are is are added more for complication and to adhere to play, like for a player to do something instead of actually win the game or built into the game loop. 
I think that we have, if you remember back to the Jules diagram with the three reasons people play games, I think that these uh-huh. things have created design space that apply to number two, which is how good the game is. And I think without mm-hmm. knowing it, a huge volume of players, both digital and tabletop, have become way more enamored with good engines and good systems than winning games. Because I don't think I've ever won Dominion, and I've enjoyed every single game I've ever played. Well, I also think that's why I never build... Like, Mazio, you know I build weird things in Magic with all my decks. Yes, let's I, go with I the word weird win, and not horribly inefficient. Hey, my deck worked fine last season. This season I need to actually add stuff from the new pack to it. <laughs> that's because Magecraft <laughs> is borderline bullshit, but I love it. <laughs> So painful. I think that's again because of how it's an engine. I have no clue what this card does, but it sounds like it makes an interesting. Oh no! It's right up your alley, Drew. Magecraft. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, an effect triggers, but the effect is card dependent, and you get all the triggers. It's a hundred percent your sort of thing. I didn't understand that, but I'm curious. Also, get my name right. I'm sorry, Jake. It's Jake. Thank you. (laughs) It's Jake Drew or Drew Jake. Uh, I want to point out that this has even become an entire genre. If you've heard of Factorio uh-huh. or Satisfactory, there's a whole bunch of automation games that are literally about extracting resources, and processing doing nothing resources with those in different resources. ways, using your infrastructure to, yes, get further, make more, expand. Colony yeah. Survival as well. Hey, one Factorio is a friends, great game. One of our friends showed us what Satisfactory and Factorio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I didn't get to play Satisfactory yet, but now that I have a new machine, I'm going to. And I literally sat there, and I was like, but why are you building this? And he was like, to build bigger and to get more things. And I'm like, but why? (laughs) And he's like, because I get more things, and it gets bigger. And I'm sitting, like, it's just not my thing. Like, I... (laughs) I like watching satisfying engines, but I need like a reason or a source behind it. Because as I was saying, like my all of my magic decks, I like watching things trigger in and interlock together. Which is why my last deck that did okay in the previous season was one where I gain life, you lose life, or I gain life and something happens. But it was mostly I gain life and you lose life, or you lose how much life I gained. And I just liked it because every time I could play a card, just like all the like eight stacks of triggers would show up on the right in arena. And you just were like, yes. Oh, you have to watch me play my storm deck. <laughs> you got to so see me play I my like storm deck. I like that. Well, I, can I draw the direct but, parallel to you the way you play Civ real quick, though, based on what you just said? Yeah, but I, but I do want to say with that specific deck in Magic, that was giving me a that was affecting my direct win condition because it was directly impacting life total. It wasn't buff monsters to break through and kill them. It was, I have a direct access to your life total. Right. And nothing but, you do didn't stop me. But the card that was giving you life and triggering that engine is indirect. Is this, yeah. Is indirect, yes. Yeah. But it's the same with Civ, right? Where if you're going for military, you're building science. Why? Science isn't going to give you domination. Yes, but it will give me knights. Right. Right. And everyone knows you need knights first if you want to get anywhere with domination. You got to get it early. And like the meta of our group now, granted, I guess we haven't, I haven't played a game of Civ in about two months at this point, but at one point, I I would like to play more Civ, but May is not going to be a pleasant month. Why do we always hedge science? Well, I need it anyway. And if I, if my other victory condition fails, I can go this other way with it. Right. And then you see somebody going ballistic on religion. 
and you have all these hedged resources in Civ that you have to have to counter other people's victory conditions, but are infinitely more difficult to scale and capitalize on into your own engine. And that's why when I watch people who are really good at Civ 6 play it on YouTube, I'm like, huh? I mean, I could write those steps down and still not pull that off. It, it's this yeah. very weird, it's this very weird thing that makes the space that we all seem to love. Hmm. So you're trying to point to the sort of complicated dance and how we have our styles of how to make things happen. We have our favorite resource that we fiddle with to win. Well, it's not even to win. It's just because we love this game because we fiddle this resource. The game is good because these resources exist. Even though, on an efficiency level, they're not actually making the game more efficient. And what I've noticed for myself, having basically retired, I guess, or just on permanent sabbatical, indefinite sabbatical from 40k, from Warhammer 40k, is, um, wow, that game has no indirect resources, really. And they've tried to interject them, and they ended up getting used as a force multiplier instead of an indirect resource. And I was like, wow, mm-hmm. this game is uh, a thing, huh? And they're like, <clears throat> what if we make it about objectives and then killing is an indirect resource? And I'm like, right, but the only way to get the objective is to kill the opponent off of it. Like 100% of the time, almost. Right, right, but right. But it's still the central <laughs> but it's still, modus. Yeah, but I'm like, you didn't, it's not far enough, right? The The game is too linear for me to like, dig into it at this point. And I know there's people on the internet right now screaming at me that are like, no, you don't understand it. And you're probably right. Because if you can't get to that after six or seven hours of gameplay, right? And I think I've played 12 hours of ninth edition at this point. Well, then I, I don't know what to tell you. How hidden is your resource value? Right? How hidden is your resource pool? Yeah. And arguably there are some sort of like emergent resources. Once you understand how AI works and stuff, by six or seven hours, you should have uncovered some other method of acting upon the game space. Yeah, and I, I I'm probably throwing around words slightly incorrectly, but I don't think you whatever. are. Sue me. I don't think don't. anybody's defined most of these things in any <laughs> official capacity. I think there's a lot of colloquial capacities from devs that are like carbon copied elsewhere. But hey, there's a term carbon copied. Everyone enjoy you like googling that one. Um, I'm so old. But I I think this is very, it's very much become the reason we're playing these games. Factorio, I mean, I know it's not for Amanda, but like Factorio is beautiful in its successes. I once watched a 20 minute video on how to like really get your belts, like your conveyor belts to feed at maximum efficiency. And I sat there, I, I gave up trying to do it like one minute in, but I watched the whole video. And why? Because this person's really responding to the gameplay space created by conveyor belts. And the idea of building a rocket and leaving the planet, which is the victory condition of Factorio, completely not relevant. Oh yeah, agreed. Uh, Two more points of Factorio. One, trains. Love them. That's the thing I focused on. Um, But two... Not only is there the quote-unquote victory condition, but it does have a second driving force, and that is resource scarcity. It's an infinite world, you'll always find more resources, but the deposits run out. 
So if you eventually keep mining coal from this location, it will eventually run dry. Hello, capitalist colonial dystopia. Um, <clears throat> but there is a second driving force coming from behind you. So they do have... They limit your resources, forcing you to expand your infrastructural resources. It's true. And then you uh, pollute more, and then you get to kill more monstery things. So they have absolutely built a balance, a sort of juggling act, and they have put pressure on you. And I think in most games, that pressure is going to be victory before the other players. In Civ, you have to hit a condition before other players, or they just cut you off and count score. Uh, similar with like Stellaris and such. Also, we talked about League of Legends is straight up a competition. Dominion again, someone's gonna the cards are gonna eventually run out and they'll all get counted. Um, we had another example. Okay, maybe not the cookie clickers, but everyone burns out on that eventually. <laughs> right, but I I think that the reason that pressure has to exist is because we would get so lost in the beauty of that game that like sublime gameplay that's created through these puzzles that it'd be it, i think i'd get bored yeah you would get bored eventually but you would get bored after you got so lost you couldn't win the game and i think there's got to be an art to it where like the game cuts off about 10 minutes in tabletop time uh or like 10 hours in video game time before you get bored. So you still sort of want to play. You can let that that desire build in the background and come back to it for a new match. Well, it's the impossible dream, right? Like, I did this thing, but I could do it better. <laughs> Let's start a new game. I think I can do it better. In fact, the game that I keep looking at and haven't bought is Brass, which is a board game. Um, you know, if I tell you the premise, you're just going to, like, phase out on me. But um, it's the same with Arkwright. Try me. Arkwright is a game about making shirts and silverware. What? It's 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 like running old time factories and like efficiency and worker pools and all this other stuff. And I look at those games and I'm like, that looks fantastic. I want to make <laughs> so many shirts. <laughs> Why? Because I want to play with the engine. What's the victory condition? Uh, I got bored and put it back in the box. But that's not a criticism of your game. I haven't played this yet in full disclosure. That's just that I'm here for the engine. And I think that's why Wingspan, if you know the tabletop game Wingspan... I need to play it. I have it. Please come over. I would love to play it. My fiancé will be fully vaccinated in two weeks, and then we can have people at the house again. It's beautiful, but because it, it, it has a much, it has a really good aggressive timer. So you're, you're not trying to build an infinite engine like you are in Factorio. You're trying to build a pressured engine, as you described it, where it's like, yep, I have this time to create this thing and I need to put as much into it as possible. And I, I think that what's very interesting to me when I look at these games, particularly games from maybe like 10, 15 years ago, is they're trying to make short, short, short loops. It felt like we were we were trending in that direction, and at some point we trended super hard in that direction. And now we're not doing that. We're making voluntary get lost mazes. And if you look a little further back into like what I would call for America primordial board gaming, because we were way behind in the world in that point. Like, what was it like in the '90s playing like you know what would basically Avalon Hill board games? And the answer was I was forced into a giant labyrinth 
and I had to try to feel my way out using tanks. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is, though. Like, there's this game, uh, I my dad had it and then consequentially gave it to me, about the North Africa campaign of World War II. And I opened it up expecting to see, like, soldiers and tanks and planes and, like, all these things you think about when you think of World War II. Uh, particularly as, like, a 15-year-old boy in the 90s. And I opened it up, and all it is is it's just supply chains. And I put it back in the box, and I'm like, I'm never playing this. And now I'm 39 <laughs> years old, and I'm like, that sounds amazing. So you're telling me that my job is to supply British troops so they can kill the Nazis. That's wonderful. There's no combat, right? I'm not responsible for kind of just making sure that, yep, okay, let's do this. Those boys need water. <laughs> but, right? But, like, think about the situation of gaming in, in 2021 that has created this space where we're all sitting here with our own examples of how excited we are. I love religion in Civ Six. It's ridiculous, and it spreads on its own. It's a viral marketing campaign. It really is. Why am I excited about running a viral marketing campaign that's effectively a tap game inside of a 4X game of Civilization VI? Because it's beautiful. And I tweak the engine while I make my tanks to protect my missionary, my, you know, my, 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 my uh, missionaries and apostles. Your missionaries roll up and they don't mind the tanks behind me. They, I swear we're peaceful. They can't attack you unless they declare a holy war. It's very expensive. They're not going to do it. <laughs> They're just here to escort me because of the <laughs> barbarians. Gosh, I'm oh. remembering these board games I played that were all about trading and food and like industry. And I can't remember their names right now. Uh, it was like a food board. See, Jake Drew. I'm, trying to go I'm Googling desperately. Go ahead and so, do it. I'm not using Google. But. <laughs> one of the games that I played with my dad when I was little was the original Dark Tower, which I don't know if anybody here has played. Mazio, did you play the original? No, I've never actually seen a functioning copy of it that was like not in behind glass type situation. I need to, I need to find a way to repair my tower. No, you need to buy the I new have, one. What? Buy the new one. I'm going to buy the new one, but I also want to repair my classic tower. But I played Dark Tower with my dad when I was growing up, and that game has quote-unquote combat. But the outcome of your combat is all based on how many troops you have, how well-fed they are, how much water you have, the keys you have. Like Your goal in Dark Tower was effectively, let me traverse the map, go to bazaars, and uncover resources that I need. Keep track of my resources on this little pegboard. And then when I storm the tower, you input into the tower all the resources you have, and it goes through like waves of enemies, and the tower will calculate how many how much resources you lost when encountering these waves of enemies. Like, were your soldiers well-fed? Did they have water? Whatever. But it's all the tower calculating it. It's not you sitting there trying to, like, position your troops in a different way. It's you just yeeting bodies at the tower and hope that you get through. Uh, and it calculates it all based on the resources you have. And I remember when I was growing up, I was like, this is so much shit to keep track of. It's not just food and water. I'd have to, like, actually go get one of the little pegboards out. But I remember looking at it, and it is a lot of resources for, like, what was a 70s board game. Yeah. <laughs> or I, I guess it was an 80s board game. I think it's eight. I think it's early 80s. I mean, I, I think that to some degree this is the influence of D&D &D on things, right? Where it's like D&D &D made it possible to track encumbrance, and then everybody thought that was a really interesting idea. But there's so, so very much involved in the beauty of that engine, the indirect value of these resources, right? Like, that makes me want to play the game infinitely more 
than you telling me how good the combat engine is. Right. I play. I have lots of great games that have wonderful combat engines. But as Napoleon put it, amateurs think of tactics, professionals think of logistics, because my soldiers are worthless if they don't have food and water. I found it. What is it? I found one of them. Go on, Jake. Food Drew. chain magnet. Oh! Food chain magnet. You have food chain magnet? No, I played it years ago. Dude, I... I can't justify that game without having, like, three people that are like, we will play this with you the day after you buy it. Because it's like $150. Why don't we live next to each other? <laughs> well, whose fault is that? God. No, I hold you directly accountable for that. Well, I'll pass your word up to God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the game incredibly well, but it was a lot of infrastructure, managing resources, claiming options. And yes, I think we've come to the conclusion that there is absolutely value to managing these resources in games board games and video games but also that it has sort of transcended to be the entertainment itself that victory is arbitrary and it's a goal but fundamentally this is where the meat of many games comes from otherwise it's just get more win i do uh i do have a comment though Matthew, you brought up D and you said that was probably the ins- not inspired by D but influenced from D D. and i think there's actually something interesting happening in the tabletop market but in the reverse so smaller games that have significantly less complicated systems than D D do does uh, are actually on the rise in the tabletop industry and in the tabletop and the tabletop role-playing game industry and D D has actually simplified its systems down with each generation which is almost a reverse of what we were just talking about happening in board games and video games yeah, I, th- I actually I th- th- Oh, go ahead. I think this is simply evolving into their niches, because most board games and video games have the benefit of structure and complexity, and we've seen that evolution. Take a look at Stellaris. It is one heck of a beast. Free-to-play games like uh, Path of Exile and Warframe, incredible complexity, for better and worse. But then the strength of Dungeons & Dragons and other role-playing games where the emphasis is on the players, is not in being able to explore and maximize those systems. There are other places you can get that. They're specializing, like an ecosystem, specializing into the storytelling. That emergent storytelling with friends, where that control is what it is, they are simply the vehicle to help you get there and facilitate that. And so I think they're simply stepping out of that niche in favor of their strengths. I agree with that, but I want to add the caveat as well that the expectation for the games we're describing is repeat play in a generally concise or ongoing manner, right? So if you're running Monster of the Week, which is a fantastic small-scale RPG, right? Yeah, I have it on my bookshelf. It's wonderful. It's a great game. I love it. But if I know I'm going to go to D&D every Wednesday night or Friday night or whatever, and the expectation is I'm going to crunch numbers and roll dice, that's significantly less attractive all the time. Part of what makes these things so successful is we'll sit down and decide to play a game of Civ on Monday, and we don't actually play it till Saturday. Right. Well, there's also a reason why no one here has played it in two months. Because it's... Because it's a huge time commitment. <laughs> yeah. It, we love it because we can choose when we engage with it. And when you force that engagement, like, not playing D&D is devastating. I mean... Oh, yeah. Right? Not playing with your role-playing group, whether it's Urban Shadows or... Uh, what's the other one? The Warren, where you play the rabbits. Not playing these games is really, really rough. They need to be simplified to be able to be palatable all the time. I need to be able to play these games when I've had a bad week at work and I'm mentally exhausted. Whereas Food Chain Magnate or Twilight Imperium or 
even something photosynthesis. I love that people God, treat that game. that game so complicatedly. I always just shoot from the hip in that game. I don't worry about it. I've worried so much. Right, but <laughs> you choose when you engage with it, and you know the time frame is limited. It's been two years. I'm finally ready. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Sh- show me in the forest where the tree hurt you. Um, Everywhere. Everywhere the light touches. <laughs> That's the problem. It only touches certain places. <laughs> Oh, you just completely misunderstood me. You realize the game is about the movement of the sun, right? I know. I I have photosynthesis. I love that game. Okay. My point being, gosh, trying to figure out where the sun is going to (laughs) be. Where's... Sorry, go on. No. (laughs) Mental capacity. No, I, I think that part of this is... I think part of the conclusion we're coming to is it needs to be a limited voluntary engagement for that to work. Just like I will go into a postmodern art exhibit pretty much whenever, but if you want me to go look at portraits, I have to be in the right frame of mind. Hang on. I'm not sure it needs to be limited exactly so much as discrete, because jumping back to our Factorio, you could play that forever. It's a game, also like Civ, where once you sort of know what you're doing, you can coast for hours working in these systems. But I agree that it needs to be discrete, where you sort of can cap it off and have an ending, perhaps, for yourself or a goal. But I do not think it needs to be sharply limited. I think your I think like, your term actually better described what I was saying because it hit the intent of what I was saying. I think I used the wrong word. So we're going with discrete. Yes. Got it. Just edit it back in, Kevin. <laughs> Clearly. God damn it. Make sure, Kevin, that <laughs> I Jay to the Drew has his proper wording. Yeah. Sure. Kevin. <laughs> this is the problem with having a listener become a guest. I don't think this is a problem at all. Amanda I realize that. No, this is me every podcast episode. So I know what I'm doing every time I schedule a podcast episode recording. There's a reason I have some, like, 7% kombucha sitting next to me. <laughs> right. I was well prepared for this. Um, I have things that I want to ask about. What's the appeal of then games that are simpler in the process that don't really have these complex engines but oh. also do well? But I think we kind of hit... Actually, I have a response to that. Oh, okay. I was like, I think we kind of already hit it, but go no, on. No, th- we did hit on it, but there is a particular quirk to that that goes into the smaller-scale games that we're seeing in certain instances, right? Because while all this is happening, there's lots and lots of very simple board games coming out in, like, the, I'm going to say, 30 to $60 price range that are all great. Azul is the one I'm going to, like, quote here. There's three Staring versions of it. Now. It's fantastic. What would you say, Drew? Jake? Staring at it now. Yeah. Wonderful <laughs> board game, right? Not complicated, but does have an unsolvable puzzle element to it. And what those scaled-down things do is allow you to focus on the complexity of an individual component in the same way that you would focus on a preponderance of components in a larger-scale game. I'd argue you see that in video games, too. Like, I brought in Path of Exile and Warframe before, where they have countless subsystems in the late game. Yeah, like, the there's a tower defense thing in Path of Exile, and then there's the kill things in a circle thing in Path of Exile, and there's the survive in the circle, and the other kill things in a circle. (laughs) Point being, (laughs) I think some of the large games try to capture that as well, and I agree, yes, having these discrete limited scope 
systems to explore and maximize and have slightly different puzzles within is a trend currently. I'm thinking that might be for the sake of accessibility as board games become a more mainstream hobby and become in part because they, they're more accessible now and becoming more accessible because they're becoming more mainstream. I just think that's feeding back into each other for making these more discrete experiences. I think you're right. I also think that there's a time element that's put into this where sometimes I want a puzzle I can solve and that will solve itself, I should say, right? The game will end within 60 to 90 minutes, and sometimes I want to play for five hours. And I think that that's a major contributing factor to how people are responding to it. And there, there is truth in what you're saying, but there's also the misnomer that because the game is shorter, it is easier or simpler. Well, no, it's filling a different gap. Lots of people I know like board games, they never want to play for more than two hours per game. They'll play a six, eight hour session and play three or four different games, but they're not interested in playing one game that whole time. Whereas I will sit down with Food Chain Magnet right now if the two of you were in my house, we'll stop the recording, and that's what we're doing for the rest of the evening. Agreed. For instance, playing League of Legends, I'll play one to four matches usually, and then my appetite is sated. I'm happy to hang out, but I'm done with this. You guys have seen that with me in Apex Legends as well. I'll usually step out a few matches before either of you do, Mm -hmm. because I am satisfied. I have hit saturation. And I think you see this, too, with games that have a lot of format shifts. Uh, League has always flirted with it, like Twisted Tree Light and Arum and things like that. Magic constantly struggles with its formatting with this. Struggle's the wrong word. I take that back. Magic constantly tweaks its formatting to abide this. Commander is super popular because Commander is like a one-to-two-hour, four-player casual experience where you can eat nachos and tap cards and ha- and, and sleek that thirst. And I think that that design space idea is probably a topic for a different podcast, but very integral to this idea of the indirect value, wherein how much of this you can put into any game, whether it's digital or tabletop, really depends upon how much time resource the players are willing to commit to it. How much can I do before I get bored? Okay, 75% of that is the target. And I almost always, because I'm the, you know, you come to my house and you go to the board game room and there's just a, there's a wall of things to choose from that you have no idea what half of them are most of the time. And you're like, I want to do this. And I'm like, all right, we're going to play this game. Why? And I'm like, because, and I'm not going to say this to you because you're my friend, but because I know you and I know that your attention span will tap out at 62 minutes. So we're going to play a 50 minute (laughs) board game. (laughs) <laughs> because it's 63 no minutes, audience. you're going to lick the window on me or something weird. So, I guess then the natural question that I have is, when does it become too much? When does a game, when does this complexity that we've added in stop becoming satisfying and start becoming overwhelming or incomprehensible? I would like to submit that that's simply a matter of perspective and audience. I'm going to keep dragging it back to Path of Exile because it has a toxic subreddit and I'm familiar with the game. But <laughs> It's a requisite it on this podcast. A... If you reference a game, it must have a highly toxic subreddit. Britney Spears would be so proud. Um, point being, uh, 
it has a lot of systems and just mastering the basics of socketing gems and leveling those up and then you know the basics of an action rpg of move shoot don't die that's enough for some people but then they start tossing in look at this thing where you have magic mods look at this where you've got this mechanic you need to hunt down beasts look at this where you have all this and there's all these subsystems and truth you can largely ignore and even like like good quote-unquote players will focus on one or two at a time and i think having that available complexity is a generally good thing but it really just depends on attracting the right audience and how big that audience is you're competing for in your market well i also think you said something key to this is that you can ignore it and still play the game in this case yes yes but if you and launch I think, a decive, I think you can't completely ignore money for instance even if you can sort of sideline religion uh, i mean there i've played some games where i don't build any banks and i'm fine i i think that's the key though is that whenever you look at a game like civ civ is a big is a big game there's a lot of interacting pieces and parts to it but if someone wanted to play it casually they don't have to work every piece of the engine at once at the start you can start them off with saying, all right, let's focus on just this piece, and they can still get from the start to finish of a game. I'd argue I think that's- if you, if the, I think whenever the systems become so complex and require you to adhere to that complexity, it becomes a problem. I think it narrows the audience. I don't think it's a problem. Yeah. Well, I-, I think I would have to, I'd have to do research to pull up like actual game titles, but there are games that have failed. Because nobody was able to comprehend what the heck was going on. Yeah, but I feel like that's going to be... And that may be due to different factors. But there there definitely is a... There's a limit to when players are like, all right. But I think that that goes back to what Jake Drew said about the the player taste or the the time the player's willing to put into it or the amount the player wishes to consume. Right? And I think that that having those options available allows for that to give multiple games the space to thrive and then shifting the components and the functionality or the thematics of the game is what gives a lot of variance but i think too to what you're saying amanda there's also a point at which the engine simply becomes old and tired regardless of how good it was when it was new and you saw that with terraforming mars and wingspan where a lot of people that i personally knew that loved terraforming mars dropped it to play wingspan not because Wingspan is so wildly better than Terraforming Mars. I mean, I do personally think it is better in a lot of respects. But simply because, oh, we've played 25 or 30 games of Terraforming Mars already. Let's move on to this other thing. Does that diminish how good Terraforming Mars was? No, but, you know, I've had all I care to, to have of this. And now it sits on the shelf and I go, oh, I love that game but I'm never going to touch it. Right, but I think I, like I said, I'd have to look up actual game titles for games that failed to garner an audience. Like, they legitimately failed. They never got the initial founding to they never call got the... back, call back, have a community to onboard new members. <laughs> what about EverQuest yeah. 2? I, so, like, think about it like this. If, I don't know how Path of Exile does it, but let's say Path of Exile has all these systems, right, Drew? Yes. What if as soon as you started the game, the tutorial of it 
was forcing you to interact with every single system. And then for you to progress anywhere in the game, you had to master all of those systems at once. Oh, yeah. It would be a nightmare. That would be League of Legends. I'm not even joking. In a number of respects. I'm not even joking. You need to learn how to spend your gold. You need to learn how to move. You need to learn how to attack, cast your abilities, kill minions. When to spend your gold, how to get gold, how to counter build, how to build properly, what a mythic is. How a mythic bonus I'd argue works. You what a don't need to is. learn how to power counter build at first. I'm I'm four months in, and if I don't know if I counter build wrong, I lose more games. Yeah, but, but you, you you've play? also admitted to me that you're going up against people who are higher than you because you queue up with Jake Jake, who is a higher elo than you. That's his name. So now. you're going up against people who have. <laughs> so you're going up against people who are much more versed in the game so you were like thrown into the the wolf pit so you had to learn quickly and i'm sure for you it felt like you had to master this all at once because the enemies that you were put up against all right. already had this all mastered but even if you relegated some of those to tier twos you still need to know how minions work towers work gold works backing works buying works dragons baron herald core like you need all of those things minimum and visibility like I think we're drawing the distinction here between physically playing and playing competently. You're saying to play comp with some level of competence. I'm saying to just make your way from game. one end of a match to the other. Because yeah. in theory, down there in iron, you could have a match where nobody ever attacks a dragon. Ooh. You just made so, me so sad. This is a this is another topic, I suppose, but literally the distinction between the basic skills to operate a game and the skills needed to effectively play I I actually think that's probably a great follow-up topic to this podcast is the required resources versus what is required versus what is necessary. So, I like the topic. I think, but that was my point, is that if all of this was required, at the very beginning, it becomes too much and overwhelming to the player. I think some of the reason why these complicated engines work and aren't immediately overwhelming is because you're not forced to learn every single part of it all at once. You can get from beginning to end of a game fine without touching certain pieces of it, but the appeal of the game is that even if you've played it once at the beginning and it's your first time playing it, there's still so much more to fiddle with and discover that wasn't required of you to get from start A from A to B, but it's there to maybe make that more efficient. It's there to do it in a different way. It's there to spice up and change gameplay. I'd also argue that you see this in RPGs a bit. I'm thinking of uh, Tales of Berseria, for instance, or other JRPGs, where they'll introduce aspects of the combat system, like these moves have elements and enemy types they're good against. Hit all the types to start a weak point combo. And it's not until later in the game or you're trying out higher difficulties that that becomes needed to effectively or have a solid chance in combat. But they introduce it well ahead of time, and it's when you double back to explore or you find yourself wanting more out of the combat that you are welcome to explore those. So I'd argue you can still make it necessary, but they give you the time to explore and develop your understanding. I think. I- well, then it's. So I don't think that's necessary, though. Like, Persona does the same thing, where Persona 5, they introduce you to, like, type weaknesses. And look, you can 
pass, uh, baton, baton pass to all your party members to keep the chain of attack going, and each baton pass powers you up. You don't need that in your first fight. Heck, you really don't need it until, like, Dungeon 3, maybe Palace 3, whatever you want to call it. But they introduce you at first so that it sits in your brain, you're aware of it, to get you ready for when they finally do say, it's required now. Can I, can I ask so you whether or not we're arguing whether some of these games that attempt this are just not good at it? Or fail that particular aspect of the, the yeah. gameplay experience. Yeah, so I guess uh, when I originally pro- like proposed this, my brain was on Warframe. Because Warframe has a very complex engine in it. For better or worse. But Warframe admits that it struggles to bring on new players. Because introducing new players to all of these systems is something Warframe just does not do ever. <laughs> I understand like, that very well. Why do I have a dog now? Right. So it's what like it's one of those things where Warframe never tells you it directly that you can forma that you can put a reactor in to double your mod capacity. Instead, you're looking through the like customization menu and you're like what the fuck is this symbol? And you hover over it, and it's like, add a reactor to double your mod capacity. And you're like, what the fuck? Well, and then you finally just do read it. and find this out? I think that's an, maybe another topic to explore, is that these complex engines have the potential to be amazing and to appeal to all the players we've talked about through this and the reasons why they appeal to them. But there's a finesse about introducing them and how each piece of the engine can be both modular but also connected and still function properly, right? The game doesn't break if you remove one piece of the engine. I think that's an interesting topic we could talk about. I'm already typing into our resource channel. Cool beans. But since I'm at an hour and five minutes-ish, Drew, is there anything you want to plug for yourself? Honestly, I'm just some schmuck. (laughs) No, there's nothing I need to plug or anything. If anything, I oddly don't want to be found as I'm going into teaching, and I have a shiny reputation I'm going to be upholding. Or at least that's the dream. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I don't have anything to plug, to be honest. I just want to go ahead and uh, give myself a thumbs up for uh, having one of the most podcast idea-rich podcasts in the podcast so far. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love this. I live for this. Theory-based podcasting is the best. Call me a uh, farmer. And Mazio, do you have anything you want to plug? I probably should, but not at the moment. Okay, well then I'm just going to plug all of my shit. <laughs> plug yourself you, to your heart's content. <laughs> it's a mini game. Oh my Jesus. What? If you guys if you guys want to know more about what Evil Quacks is up to outside of this podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Evil Quacks or on Facebook with Evil Quacks, we're a page. Or you could look at our website, evilquacks.com slash games to get a little bit more knowledge on what the crap we're currently up to. Uh, we just finished our UI for Project Sam, and I think it's really neat. So go check it out. Otherwise, podcast releases every other week. We're also live on Twitch every Thursdays and Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. With Brian, who does an amazing job. Oh, I love Brian. Brian's great. Brian's a good cookie. Oh, yeah. Um, he's no Jake. He should make cookies but... in Stardew. He's been playing Stardew Valley. He's been doing other stuff. I think they've just wrapped up GTA. Yeah, they did. What are they going to do? I don't know. They messaged me the schedule, and I, <laughs> I wrote the tweets for it, and I forgot. <laughs>
But um, yeah, go check them out over at Twitch at Evil Quacks. Uh, otherwise, thank you guys so much to listen for listening to this episode. We hope that you'll join us for the next one, whatever it may be. Probably one of the ideas that we brought up in this podcast, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, all of my other ideas get wiped out by Discord, yes. Oh my gosh. Otherwise, uh, stay evil. Quack, quack. <laughs> <laughs>